we have a very special gift today, and that is the, the content that we're about to study in God's Word. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very essence of the Gospel. And because of that, we have a special time of, at the end of today's message, I'm going to present you with an opportunity to dedicate your life to Jesus for the very first time, if you've never done that. Maybe that you've been examining Jesus for some years now, maybe it's brand new to you, but you said, you know what, the more and more I learn about who Jesus is, I fall in love with Him, and the more I learn about what He's done, I know that is what I need. And so today, I want to give you that opportunity um, so we begin in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, if you would turn there with me. It's page 705 in the Bibles that were handed to you, page 705. It is Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. For indeed, today is the last part of our Matthew series. We have now been through it with the breaks, I don't know, probably 35 weeks now. It's been a long time. But we are in part 26 in the final part of Matthew's gospel. I'm going to be mostly sticking with his gospel today. However, the two times I will deviate to bring in all four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a combined effort to explain it more fully. But we begin uh, with today's message entitled, Paid in Full, the Death and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to begin with the fill in the blank there in front of you on your handout sheet that we gave you at the front door. And it's very simply this. The cross explains everything. Love and justice. The cross explains everything, love and justice. And the reason why I say that is there's a cry in every human heart, is, does God love me and is God fair? The cross explains both of those. So we begin with just a prayer for the word and we can open up in Matthew 27:32. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes to see in your words something we've never seen before. Open up our hearts to respond to you that it might be effective in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage begins with this. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. So where are we at in the story? We're on the last day of Jesus' life. Now, you remember last week that Jesus had already been beaten to the point of death. He had not died, but he had been beaten so severely that it's very unlikely that he has any strength left in his body. He has been beaten to the degree to where his body has been opened up in being torn apart to where he's probably bled out a good amount. And so his strength is low. So as they begin to say, it says they carried out the cross. And we know from John's gospel that Jesus started by carrying it on his own. But at some point he was no longer able. So we speculate that perhaps he kept falling and the soldiers just didn't want it to take that long. So they grabbed another guy to step in and take care of his cross. Who is this man? Well, he's a nobody. He's a guy that we learned that was just passing through. He's from North Africa. Just came in. He's a Jew. Came in on a visit. Just coming into town trying to go from one location to another. And he gets caught up in this massive drama. He didn't ask for it. He didn't, he didn't even perhaps even know what this whole Messiah-Jesus connection was all about. Maybe he was brand new. And now this man named Simon is pressed into service by the Romans. How is that even possible? Well, you all remember the rule we've had for the last three weeks. Who's in charge? Rome's in charge in the New Testament. Therefore, you've got to realize that when Rome wants you to do something, you do it. 
So sure enough, they're going through. Jesus is falling down. It's causing a mess. It's taking too long. So they tapped this guy on the shoulder and said, hey, step in, grab his cross, take it for him. He cannot refuse that as a Jew under Roman rule. He must do it or face the consequences, which are either imprisonment or death. So he's forced in. What do we know about this guy? We only really know one spectacular fact about him other than where he's from. And that is that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. You go, who? We don't know who they are. Here's why it's amazing. The only time the gospel ever writes down somebody's first names is because the whole church knew exactly who they were. Here's why it's so powerful. It is most likely that when this man was pressed into service, he began to know Jesus in a very intimate way. He ends up getting saved and his whole family is impacted. And now the whole New Testament church knows his boys' names. How incredible is that? He was just passing through and Jesus grabbed him by the shirt and changed his life. This man is now going to carry the cross. Now you say, what do you mean carry the cross? We see a lot of pictures and some guys do this where they carry a full cross, the long vertical beam, the horizontal beam, and they carry it maybe with a wheel on it and they drag it across the country. You've heard of these guys in order to make a statement about Jesus' suffering. I think it's very noble. However, it's not exactly historically accurate. What would happen is that as you can see on the cross, there's a vertical beam that would be over at the crucifixion site. Only the horizontal cross beam would be what you carry. So what you would do is lay it on your shoulders, wrap your arms over the top of it in order to get a hold of it. And you are then chained and forced to move forward very much like a slave and carry your cross beam to the place of your death. Now, we know that Jesus was not alone. He had two other men that were carrying their cross beams along with him. Two other criminals, which we find out were robbers. They are now let out, so there's this procession of bad guys. Jesus is now looks like he's one of the criminals, one of the bad guys, and people began to make disparaging remarks. He's already been mocked, he's already been beaten, he's already been ridiculed, he's already been thrashed, and it just keeps getting worse. Now Luke tells us that a large group was following him. Many of those were women crying out in mourning. Whether they were professional mourners, I don't know. But they began to cry out and scream out, and some of them were sad for Jesus. Some were probably hired. And they come in, and they're crying out. And even as Jesus is walking in his agony, in his exhaustion, we know now that he was disfigured to the point of not even recognizable as a man. He probably slurred all his words. He probably was so beat up on his face that it was now expanding into a tremendous headache because of the, the beatings on his head. And as he's going through this, he stops in the middle of this long roadway. And he turns and he faces the women that are crying and he says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. And what he is explaining to her is that he knows where he's going. He knows what he's accomplishing. You don't need to weep for him. He's doing it willingly. What you need to weep for is the fact that because the Jews were so resistant, judgment was going to come upon them. And in A.D. 71, not but three decades later, Rome would come and tear apart all of Jerusalem, devastate it, and people would be slaughtered. He said, you need to weep for that. Don't weep for me. So even in the midst of his agony, he stops to give them a message to try to redirect it and say, you still need to turn to the Lord. He's still doing ministry even now. It says, they came to a place called Golgotha which is an Aramaic word that means skull. 
So the place was called the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Why? Is Jesus against wine? No, he just drank wine at the Last Supper. Why? What is gall? Gall does not mean any ingredient. It means bitter. So it just merely means wine that was mixed with something that tastes bitter. So it just tastes nasty. But what was it that made it taste nasty? We learn in Mark's gospel that it was mixed with myrrh. When's the last time you heard the phrase or the word myrrh used? It's in the Christmas story. You remember, Jesus got three presents, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's fascinating that that shows up again at his death. So now it's mixed with myrrh. What happens when you mix myrrh with wine? It, for all practical purposes, it's dope. It's a narcotic. It's a drug. It's intoxicating. You get stoned. That's the point. What happens is, is because the crucifixion was kind of a Roman institution, they didn't make it up. They borrowed it from the Persians who gave it to the Phoenicians, who gave it to the Carthaginians, who then the Rome got it. But they wanted the pain to be long lasting, difficult. But the Jews had a certain amount of sympathy if it's a Jewish man that was going to die on the cross. So a wealthy Jewish woman would make this concoction of a drug. And it would give a narcotic effect for a short amount of time. So when they're nailing you specifically to the cross, it doesn't hurt as much. You'll still die. It'll still wear off. But the first couple hours, you'll be okay. A little less. So they mixed up this drink. They gave it to Jesus. He doesn't know what's coming his way. They pour it into his mouth, spits it out, doesn't want any part of it. Why? Two main reasons, in my opinion. Number one, he had more ministry to do and he wanted a clear mind to get it done. He wanted to be able to say the right things, do the right things, share the right things, convey the right things. And he didn't want anything messing with his head. Second thing is that why was he dying? For you and me. And he didn't want to take any shortcuts. If he's going to take the pain of his kids, he wants it all. He doesn't want any shortcuts, doesn't want any way out of it. He wants to take the full thing right on his chest. Give it all to me so that my children might live. It was all for us. It's always been for us. Then what? It says, here they crucified him. Now, this is the story of him on the cross is only understandable if you read all four gospel accounts. So for this short portion, let me combine them for you. But understand, it was 9 a.m. when Jesus was crucified. So it was early in the morning. A lot of times we think it was a later time. But understand this. Jesus is only going to be on the cross for six hours. Now, you think six hours? Are you kidding me? It's a long time. It is. Have you ever been in torment for six hours of that sort? No, not to that magnitude, perhaps. You would be dead. But understand that that's short for cross. When you're on the cross, the way that you die is actually long-term death. You're supposed to hang there, and you very well could hang there for days up to a week. You just hang there, and you die from the elements. You die from dehydration. You die from everything else, not from the crucifixion. You either got to bleed out or you got to have some problem. The most common way people would die is asphyxiation or suffocation. Because when they nail out your arms like this and you hang down, you can't get a good deep breath. And eventually it begins to restrict. So what you do is you push up, get a breath, sink down. Well, eventually you get too exhausted and you just give up. Now, the way the crucifixion would work is they have to nail you to the cross. Now, we always see the fancy pictures of Jesus with the marks right in his palms. Have you seen that a lot? Okay, that's probably not historically accurate. Why? Sheer practicality. If you're going to nail a ground man and hang him by some nails, 
What's going to happen if the nail's right here? It's going to pull right out and he's going to fall forward. So that's ineffective to hold him there. So what do you do? You've got to nail it through his what? His wrist. That way you have a bone on either side and a bone up in the hand so it can't come off. So you're basically trying to hold him there. And you watch to make sure he doesn't come off or nobody comes up and gets him. Now, when you're going to be hanging there, you need some way to push up and they need some way to nail you in there so your legs aren't flailing. So they put both your feet together and with one nail, they drive it through both of them and nail your feet to the cross below. Now, they either do it through the instep or they do it through the Achilles tendon. And they lock you on there, and that's what you use to push off with, right? So it would only make sense that if they want to hurry it up, which they're going to want to in this story, what do you do to make the guy die faster? You break his legs, and he can no longer push up at all because he no longer has any strength or any ability to push. And then he dies faster by suffocating to death. That is what Jesus is facing. It says, here they crucified him along with two criminals, robbers, One on his right, the other on his left, and Jesus in the middle. It was the third hour. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So even now, as the nails are being driven into his wrist, he is calling out for intercession and prayer for the nation that is destroying him, for the Romans that are nailing him. He just said, Father, they don't get it. They don't understand that I'm the Son of God. If they knew me as I was, this would never be occurring. It says, when the soldiers had crucified him, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to each other. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Now, that's a hundreds of years before that prophecy. You think the Romans were trying to fulfill prophecy? No, this is just what they do. Here's how it works. When a man is crucified, he's largely led out by four soldiers. A normal Jewish man had five pieces of clothing on. And when you crucify somebody, you get his stuff. So the soldiers had automatic rights to whatever his clothing was. Maybe they would sell it for some type of money. But there was four cheap items and one expensive item. So uh, most Jewish men would have five items. Your shoes. Your girdle, which was basically your underwear. Your undergarment, which is a tunic below. Then you'd have something for your head to keep up your hair, that which we would think of as a turban. And then they had the outer cloak. The outer cloak was the expensive piece. So they would take the other four and they'd easily divide them up. Well, you want the shoes, you want this, you want that. And they'd hand them all out. And then they said, well, let's not tear that. That's going to ruin it. Let's play a game let's play dice let's draw straws let's figure out who's going to get it that way so at the foot of the cross while jesus is bleeding to death while jesus is dying they're playing games and taking his stuff it says and sitting down they kept watch over him there now above his head Pilate, the roman governor had written a notice prepared of the charge against him and he fastened it to the cross it read this is jesus the king of the jews Now, many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. The sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews on there, but write this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered what I've written, I've written. Everybody remember how irritated Pilate is with the Jewish people? He does not like them at all. So he said, hey, I wrote it, leave it alone. 
Now, what he wrote up there is amazing. Do you see that? While Jesus is dying, there's a literal sign above him as to who he really is. The king of the Jewish people. Now, Pilate doesn't care. He probably wrote it to agitate, to irritate him, because he's irritated by their very presence. He doesn't even want to be involved in this. But there it is, right above Jesus, which indicates that normally, you know how you see a lot of pictures and they say, well, crucifixion used to be a big T where they would put the arms up and they would put the, we know that it had a cross beam that went up so that something could be nailed above his head. That's where we get the cross that looks like that. Moves on. It said, we go back to Matthew 27, 39. Those who pass by Jesus, remember he's by the street, so people are just going by. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, why don't you save yourself? Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. Right, but he can't even save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him, Matthew said. That takes some serious guts. When you're nailed up there, you're probably pretty bitter. You're probably pretty angry. But you know what? To start messing with a guy next to you, that's just bad form. Now, luckily, we have Luke. Now, Luke says, hold on a second. I know what Matthew's trying to say, but I need to remind you only one made fun of him. Let me tell you a little story about the other one. Now, he begins to say that one guy on one side of him began to literally heap insults. And he's like, hey, man, if you're God, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you grab us and let's get off this cross thing and move on? And you keep saying you're a miracle magic man. Well, why don't you take us with you? Help us out a little bit. The guy on the other side, he can't motion to him, so he's got to lean over, right? Look around Jesus. He's like, what is your problem? Don't you get who this is? Don't you understand who's hanging here with us? We are here because we're guilty. He has done nothing wrong. He is an innocent man. He is the son of God. He knows who is hanging there. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, you don't say that unless you really believe he's king and God. Jesus looks back at him and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And that man we know was saved. That is the thief on the cross. We pick up the story in verse 45. Now, John adds that there are five people at least at the foot of the cross. There's four women and one guy. Who's the one guy? John. As a matter of fact, Jesus' best friend. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, the beloved. It said, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that is noon to 3 p.m., darkness came over all the land. Luke said the sun just stopped shining. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Now that is Aramaic and Hebrew together. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now so much is wrapped into that and people all argue about what it means. Is that when God turned his back, the father turned his back on the son? And there's all this debate. We don't know. We know one thing for sure. It's a quotation from Psalm 22. Now Psalm 22, when David wrote it, was a dark hour of his life. But it's a psalm of hope and victory. Even though things are dark now, things are going to change. And that is indeed what Christ was trying to convey. It says, verse 47, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, wait, he's calling Elijah. You're like, what? What are you talking about? 
Oh, he said Eloi. They think he said Eli. So he's calling out to Elijah. Now, they had all kinds of superstitions about Elijah. It says he's calling to Elijah and then something else happens, which you don't see in Matthew. You have to read it in in John. John says that at that point, Jesus said to fulfill prophecy, he said, I am thirsty. Now we go back to Matthew and it makes sense. Why? It says immediately, verse 48, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, offered it up to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Now, why did they think he was saying Elijah? Well, once again, I would suggest that he was so beat up, he probably wasn't speaking very clearly. He was probably not enunciating very well. But it says, when Jesus had drank the drink, He cried out again in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. What did he cry out? You got to go into some other accounts to figure out what he cried out. He cried out actually two phrases. They're very significant. The first phrase is father into your hands. I what commit my spirit. So whatever my God, my God, what has thou forsaken me is that would be a little. You have to read it in light of his next phrase, which says, I'm now giving you father over my spirit. So they're still in oneness. The second thing that he says is a three-word phrase that is a victor's shout. When you finish and you feel good about what you did, you shout out this shout, which is what? It is finished. I'm all done. I've done what I was born to do. And he, with that, he breathed his last, bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Nobody killed Jesus. He gave up his spirit. And he gave it up for you and I. So let me ask you a question. Why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? He had to die because if he didn't die, his kids die. And that he's not okay with. Remember, I told you that he took the beatings for us in the same way he took the cross for us. That he knows very well that the wrath of God will come against all sin. There is no sin that will be excused. There is no sin that will be looked over. There is no sin that will be ignored. For all sin is violation against a holy and righteous God. Every tiny sin is a violation. It is cosmic treason against the great and holy and almighty God. Therefore, no, he's not just going to ignore it. No, he's not just going to let it go. No, he's not going to blow it off. It's very very serious, very significant, and someone's got to die. Now, the question is who? Jesus said, I want to go. I do not want any of my kids. I love these people. I love these children. Father, take it upon me. Take all of your wrath, the wrath against the world, the wrath against those that I love. That I know we cannot just let it go, but let the penalty fall upon me. And all the sins of the world, all that wrath, all that pain, all that severity was launched 100% at Jesus. And he took it all. And he died for us. And now he offers us a choice to engage with what he has done. It's a doctrine of substitution that he wants to switch his life with yours. He said, I have done mine right. I did mine perfect. I am the sinless, unblemished Lamb of God. 
I've handled every relationship right. I've never sinned once. I've done everything my father ever asked me to do. My record is pure. Do you want it? For I want yours. All of your garbage, all of your bondage, all of your yucky life. I'll trade you. Let me die, not you. Kill me. Don't die for this. So what does he require? You understand that there's a lot loaded in this, yeah? This is not about, hey, thanks, God, appreciate it. Why don't you go ahead and take my sins? I'm going to go ahead and just hang out over here. There's only one classification of people that are saved, and those are the desperate. As long as you got pride and you can still cut it and you can do your own thing, there's a Jesus for you. Only the desperate that fall down before God as sinners, admittedly so, repent of what they have done. Say, I will turn the course of my life towards God, not away from God, towards God, that though I don't know how to do it all, I fall at the feet of Jesus and I say, save me. That is the person that is saved. To many that have believed in his name, to many that have received him, he has what? Given the right to become children of God. And when he enters into your life and he switches records with you and he wipes clean all of your life, past, present, future sins, as he looks at the whole chart of your life and stamps paid on it, you are right with your God. You are whole, you are sinless, you are cleansed in God's sight. Therefore, it says in our Bible that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan no longer has anything to accuse you of. The world has nothing on you. You have nothing on yourself. For he has taken it all away. And his blood has cleansed everything in you. Is that what you want today? But if Jesus just died, he's not God. So our story does not end there. It ends with a victory. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Why is that important? What curtain are we talking about? The curtain of the Holy of Holies. In the temple, remember, we talked about the Ark and the Covenant, and there was that special place, and God's presence would sit and hover above the mercy seat. Where only one man could ever go one time a year on, as a representative of the nation of Israel. The high priest, only one guy after being cleansed ritually, could walk in and minister for a short time before God. Everyone else had to stay out, for God was too holy, too amazing to be engaged with by man. Not after Jesus died. God grabs the top of the curtain, shreds it in half, and goes worldwide. He said, no more barrier, no more distance. My son has paid the price, and I will now get personal with everybody. I will now engage with you and say, you must die, and I will make you live. Now God is in our midst. Now God is all around. He's no longer in some locality. He is right there with us. We learn it gets even more powerful in Acts. When the Holy Spirit shows up and Jesus said, it's better that he shows up because I went worldwide. He went inside. Big difference. 
It says the earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Freaky? You know, it's, hey, Uncle Bob, what the heck are you doing here? Honey, set another plate out. Right? Why? Why do we got to have this? Why the flash? Because Jesus conquered death. He said, you want to see how powerful that is? You want to watch him come back? Guys, get back up. Head back in. Let them know. I win. That's amazing. When the centurion, that means the Romans and those who were with him that were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Even Rome gets it. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee, just like always, to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, who were James and John. And then Jesus is buried. And once again, this is where I depart from Matthew and include the other accounts, mainly out of Mark's gospel. It was preparation day, and the next day the special Sabbath was about to begin. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. And they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so the scripture would be fulfilled, that not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. Now... Who's going to get him down? Later, as evening approached, there came a rich man from the Judean town of Arimathea, a good and upright man named Joseph, a prominent member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. But he had not consented to their decision and their action. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God and had himself become a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he had been an undercover believer. Not anymore. The next phrase says, going boldly to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. When you see the death of Jesus, a boldness rises up. He said, I don't care what anyone knows. I don't care what anyone thinks about me. That man is my savior. And he boldly marched in, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Now, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. So summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from him that it was so, Pilate ordered that he be given to Joseph. Now, Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus. What is Nicodemus famous for? He's a Pharisee. A man who had earlier visited Jesus at night, and they took the body down from the cross. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Now at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden was Joseph's new tomb, 
in which no one had ever been laid that he had cut out of rock. They laid Jesus there and rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and they went away. Now Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb where he was laid. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in observance of the commandment. We pick it up in Matthew 27:62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was alive, that deceiver, he said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. That last deception would be worse than the first. All right, Pilate said, take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. They went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now, Mark and Luke tell us they brought spices to anoint the body, but they didn't know how they were going to get in because they're not strong enough to roll the rock back. But meanwhile, Matthew 28, 2, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The Roman guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. That's a powerful angel. Why do you have to roll this tomb back? Why did I have to roll the stone back? Was Jesus waiting to get out? Hey! Oh! Angel! I'm raised all, you know, can you just kind of open the door? That'd be appreciative. No. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that early in the morning, before all this occurred, Jesus had already raised from the dead. So why are we opening the tomb? So people can go in and see it. This is all about a demonstration now. We find out that at this point, the women split up. There was actually a whole crew of them. Mary Magdalene, when she sees from a distance that the tomb had been messed with, she takes off and runs to tell Peter and John. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. You guys got to come and hurry up and see this. And they respond to it. The other ladies go to investigate. When they show up, they're looking around in the tomb, checking out all the stuff. And all of a sudden, some angels appear. One of the angels says this. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, for I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. But suddenly along the way, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me there. Now, Mark adds, they didn't say, that, they didn't say anything to the guys right away, but they did later. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say that his disciples came and stole the body while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him. We'll keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then Matthew closes the story. But what you miss are three significant events. Mark... Luke and John go on to explain that when the women were running back to tell the disciples and 
Mary had already stirred up Peter and John. They took off running. Peter and John take off running. They don't understand what's going on. She said somebody's messed with their Jesus. So they run to the tomb. What's great is Mark records that John outran Peter, right? I love that. He just had to record that. By the way, John was faster. Okay, that's kind of a little jab. So sure enough, John runs faster, gets to the tomb, stands at the door. He's marveling at it. Peter runs, shoves him aside, runs inside, starts grabbing everything, looking at all the mummy stuff because the body's gone, but all the wrappings are still there. If someone would have stole the body, they would have taken it wrappings and all. No, Jesus disappeared. He came alive. It says Peter left wondering, still didn't know what happened. For it records a very small line in John that says the disciples still did not know that he had to raise from the dead. Yo, really? After all of that? John left believing. They come back. The whole crew comes back to the disciples. The other ladies go, we saw him. Mary's trailing. She's hanging back. She can't leave the tomb. Peter and John run back to tell the guys, but she can't handle it. She starts bawling. And she goes in the tomb and she just wants to be near where her Jesus used to be laid. And sure enough, the angels show up to her and they said, what are you doing? She said, they've taken my Jesus and I don't know where he's at. Now she should have went, wow, that's weird. The two guys just appeared right next to me. She didn't care. I don't care who you are. You're an angel. Where's my Jesus? You're not it. You're less than what I'm looking for. Where's my Jesus? All of a sudden, a man shows up at the entrance to the tomb. She can't see who it is. Maybe the light's behind him. Maybe it's in a shadow. She thinks he's a gardener. He said, what are you crying about? She said, somebody's taking my Jesus. Show me where you took him. I'll go get him. What's she going to do? She's one woman. How's she going to carry this big, huge guy? She didn't care. Who cares about the facts? I just got to be near my Jesus. He said, Mary. She looks at him. It's the Lord. Runs up, dives at his feet, and hangs on to him. He's alive. She's never going to let him go again. He said, Mary, I got a lot of stuff I got to do. So I really appreciate the love. But don't you understand I'm alive? We're going to spend a lot of time together. It's all right. Sure enough, everybody goes back and tells the disciples. And it says the disciples thought it was nonsense. They don't get it. So Jesus has to show up himself. They're upside. They're up in an upper room with locked doors for afraid of the Jews. Jesus shows up in their midst. Hey, guys. Ah, they'll freak out. You're a ghost, right? They start yelling. He's like, no, 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 I'm not a ghost. Look, you can touch me. You can, you can feel me, right? You got any fish? Ghosts don't eat fish, right? They eat other stuff. So anyway, so he eats a little piece of fish, right? He's trying to convince them I'm completely legitimate. Everybody's there but one guy. Who? Thomas, right? So you got 10 out of the 11, right? All the other guys, oh, Jesus is so awesome. He talks to him a little bit. But Thomas isn't there. So sure enough, Thomas comes home. Hey, guys, what's up? We saw Jesus. It was awesome. No, you didn't. No, really, we did. There's ten of us. We're all saying we did. Till I see it, it didn't happen. Wow, Mr. Skeptic. Okay, well, we all saw him, so I don't care what you think. Well, until I see it, until I put my hands in the nail marks, I don't buy it. You know anybody like that? Anybody resistant to the gospel like that? Yeah. They're called our neighbors. A lot of people are resistant to Jesus until they see it. They ain't going to believe it. So later on, Jesus shows up when everybody's there. He said, Thomas, come here for a second. Well, you got to touch me. Is that what you got to do? Come on. What is wrong with you? You know me. You know your brothers wouldn't lie about that. Go ahead. Put your hand on my side. Is that what you want to do? You want to touch me? I'm legit. You know what? You believe now because you see me. Praise God. There's a whole world full of people that are going to believe in me. And they've never seen me. 
Knock it off. And he says a couple other words, rises up in front of them, said, I'll meet you in Galilee. That's where Matthew finishes his story. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So we still have some doubt problems. John records what occurred. He says that there are seven of them were out fishing. And they're out there trying to fish. They've been fishing the whole time. They haven't caught anything. They're really frustrated. And all of a sudden, some guy shows up on the shore. Hey, get anything? No. Thanks for asking. Hey, did you ever try the right side of your boat? No, Mr. Smarty Pants, we didn't try the right side of the boat. There's not a lot of right-sided fish out here. (laughs) These fish seem to swim both directions. So, no, we didn't try the left side or the right side. We just kind of been fishing, right? What do we do for a living? We're fishermen. Right? I think we know what we're doing. Hey, why don't you try the right side? Let's try the right side. Whatever. They throw the the nets over on the right side. What happens? Boom! It's full of fish. John stops, looks over. That's Jesus! They're like, no way! Peter throws on his shirt and dives into the water and swims immediately to shore. There's Jesus cooking him up some breakfast around a fire. When they finish eating, he says, Peter, Last time we had some significant time together, I remember we were in a courtyard, and I remember you were shouting something about not knowing me. Come here. Let's go for a walk. John goes, can I come? He's like, all right, hang back there, though. Yeah, that's fine. They're walking along, and he says, hey, hey, Peter, do you love me? Do I love you? Yeah, absolutely. What are you talking about? All right, then I want you to feed my sheep. They're walking along a little longer. Hey, Peter, you love me? Do I love you? Yeah, I thought we covered that. All right, whatever. Yeah, absolutely I love you. Tend my lambs. They're walking along. Hey, Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Okay, Jesus, now you're freaking me out. Because you know everything, and why do you keep asking me? What's this all about? Do you love me? That's what I asked. Yeah. Take care of my sheep. All right. And Peter was brought back into the fold, into leadership, after all that he had done. That's the mercy of Jesus. Matthew finishes with this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are left with two things. One, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, if you deem yourself a Christian, you have a job to do. It's called the Great Commission. It is everyone's job. It is not my job as a pastor. It is my job as a believer. The Great Commission says that we are to be salt and light in this world. And if you are not sharing and sprinkling Jesus into your world, you have ceased to become useful. You are no longer salt. You are no longer light. You were put here, you were saved, and you were left here for a reason. To tell the whole world how amazing your Lord is. Are you doing that? When you come to a church like this, and I train you up every week, we're not super seeker-sensitive. I don't do the basics. We're pushing hard here. Why? Why? Because I'm training you to get out there and do it. 
If you're not out there sharing your faith, we got to radically re-rack this church because nothing's getting done. This is not about knowledge hour. This is not about you learning so that you can know more than the other guy at the Bible study. That's not what this is. This is training for life. And for those of you that have never had a time when you can look back and say, I remember when I fell at the feet of Jesus and I said, save me. This time is for you. Can I have the team come on up and close us out? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask you to do something that perhaps is embarrassing, perhaps nerve-wracking. And you know what? I don't care. Because this is about you and God. It's not about you and me. It's not about anyone sitting next to you. I'm going to start praying. And when I pray, I want you to get out of your seat. And I want you to walk up here. I want you to kneel right here at the stairs. Why? Because I want you to own it. I want you to know in your spirit that you need Jesus so bad that you're willing to do something stupid for him. That you're willing to get out. That you're not letting pride stop you. That you're not allowing peer pressure to stop you. You ignore all those people. This is you and God. If you need Jesus to save you today for the first time, because you've never done it, you can't remember when you did it, you're just kind of spiritual. I'm not buying that. Either Jesus is your Lord and Savior, or you're lost. If you need your Jesus today, and you are willing to turn the course of your life around and start walking towards Him, whatever that means. If you are willing to admit that you can't cut it yourself, that you don't have it all sorted out, and you want to cling to the hem of His robe and beg that He would save you, He is waiting here with open arms, and He's willing to trade His life for yours. Would you bow your heads with me and all of you that the Holy Spirit is tapping on right now, don't you dare let anything shut you down. Get out of your seat and come up here. I don't care if you're in the lobby. I don't care if you're in the back. Come up now to the front and spend some time with your Lord. When you get up here, I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray with you And give you some words that you can share with your Lord. And give you some things that you can say and how to cry out. You're not alone walking up here. You're with all the rest of us. So get out of your seat and come up here. I don't want to pray by myself. We have a number of folks that are already kneeling up here and they want to engage with their Lord. Please come up here with us. You've got to have Jesus. You've got to come up here. He's waiting for you. And I'm going to pray. But if I just pray by myself, if you're not praying it in your heart, it doesn't matter. You've got to pray too. You've got to cry out in your own spirit and say, yeah, what Lance said, that's what I want. That's what I need. That's why we come down. There's plenty of room. Just find a spot. Come on up here. Anybody else? 
We don't have a lot of time. We're going to call it. But I need you up here. I don't want you leaving and going, gosh, I wish I would have went. No, you don't wish you would have went. Just come right now. No more. Come and join me. And as I pray, pray in your heart with me. Jesus, we cry out to you now. We ask that you would save us. That, Lord, we know we cannot handle not only our lives, but we cannot handle the afterlife. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're going. We have so much garbage, so much junk, so much slavery that's holding us down. We want you to cleanse all of that. Make it all clean. Take it all away. Allow the blood on your cross to cover us today. That we now know that you are master and Lord. We want to give all of our lives over to you and turn and repent from the way we've done it and walk towards you. We pray right now that you would reach down deep inside and do for us what we cannot do. That you would take away all the garbage and give us a heart transplant. That you would switch with us, that you would make us clean. That you would take all our sins in the past, all our sins we commit even now, and all our sins of the future, and mark them paid. Save us, Jesus. We lay ourselves at your feet and we ask that you would make us new, make us whole. And be our king. In Jesus' name. I want you to stay here. And I want those of you that know that you have Jesus in your life. And you need to talk about it with him. You need to sort some stuff out. We're going to sing this song. I want you coming up here too. This is Jesus time. This is time for us to hang out together. So if you need some special date time with God. While we're singing this song. Come join the rest of us. And I'm just going to move through here and pray. For some of those that are up here, I'm just going to lay my hands on you and pray for you just because I love you. So everyone hang out here with us while the song is going. Everybody else that you need to be up here, be up here. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brother right now. I ask, Lord, that you would lift the burdens from his heart. That you would lift the fears, that you would lift the insecurities, that you would lift all the garbage that he allows to hold him down. I ask that you would make him free, that you would lift up his spirit and he would emerge from this altar free and whole and healthy and to know that he has life and to know that his Jesus loves him and that he is acceptable in your sight because of what Jesus did on the cross. I pray right now for my sister, Lord, that you would hear her prayer, that you would hear her cry, and that she would know that her daddy loves her, that she is acceptable even now as she is, that you have paid for everything, that you love him, that you love her, that you would keep her, that you would shield her, and that she is safe in your arms, and that she can be free and healthy and whole in you. Lord, don't allow anyone to scare her. Don't let anyone try to chase her. For, Father, nothing will separate her from the love of God. That she is safe in you. Lord, I pray for my sister right now that you would meet her here. Love on her. Refresh her. 
heal her and make her whole. That, Lord, she can let it all go and to know that she is acceptable in your sight. That she has no condemnation, that there is nothing on her. That, Lord, that she can be alive and whole and healthy. Oh, Jesus, be with her today. Father, I pray for my brother right now that you would meet him here, that here right now at the altar that he would know that you are his God and that he is your child, that he is strong, that he is healthy, that he is whole, that you have done everything he could not do, that you have set his soul free, that he is light, that he no longer has any garbage. There is no accusation against him, but Lord, that he is completely yours, completely your man in Jesus' name. pray right now with my sister, Lord, that you would lift the burdens from her heart, that you would allow her to know that her heavenly father sees her as his precious little girl, and that she is wonderful to you and amazing, and that you designed her just the way she is so that she would be loved, and Lord, that she would never feel like anyone could ever say that she's anything other than the most glorious daughter of God, and that you would heal her from the inside out, that you would lift all the junk off of her that she would be free and healthy and whole. I pray right now for my sister, Lord, that you would free her and heal her and hold her. That, Lord, that you would be her God and that she would be so precious to you that you would sing love songs to her and take care of her and let her know that she is so amazing to you and that you've watched her since she was a little baby and that, Lord, that you have raised her up and you've had your hands around her and that she, Father, was worth dying for, that she is your princess today. In Jesus' name. freedom that Christ has afforded on our behalf and his victory over death and his victory over our sin we move forward now in life everlasting life in him